Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Okay, so what's a trillion bucks? According to uh, Jerry Pacheco, who's a trade expert, international trade expert, uh, if you were to stack a billion U.S. dollar bills on top of each other, the stack would reach 67.9 miles. If you stacked a trillion dollars in dollar bills in the same manner, the column would reach 67,866 miles or comfortably into space, which, of course, is where Elon Musk is interested in taking the world privately. And according to um, uh, one of the analysts at Morgan Stanley last week, Elon Musk may become the world's first trillionaire. World's first trillionaire. What's a trillion dollars? And I think that Hertz, the car rental company, has announced they're buying 100,000 Teslas for their fleet. That's going to add tremendously to Elon Musk's personal worth. Okay, so suddenly they get little news like that and you just feel a little less significant. Financially, anyway. Dr. Eric Cam joins us, professor of macroeconomics at Ryerson University. He's a regular contributor to this program and manages to put things into perspective. So, Dr. Cam, a trillion dollars, one guy. How does this happen? Well, first of all, you're right. Uh, it's an awful lot of money. Um, but I would like to say, Roy, to go back to what you just said, um, it makes you feel a little bit small financially. Well, you know what? It, I hope that it actually doesn't. I mean, if you look out onto the world, sometimes you see a lot of negativity and a, not, a lot of uh, people feeling down about their financial well-being and thinking, where can I actually get to in the world? I'd like to turn this story upside down and say that Elon Musk is really an example of what happens when ingenuity meets timing, meets good ideas. And I actually, believe it or not, very much believe in the great Canadian and great American dream that we can do anything or be anything. So I actually hope that when people hear that he's narrowing in on being worth a trillion dollars, that they're not feeling down. And in fact, I, I'd like them to be able to turn to their children and grandchildren and say, there's nothing special about Elon Musk. He puts on his pants and his shirts like we do. And there's no reason, no reason why that can't be today's young people. And I know, I know I'm being a little pie in the sky here, but since you're just talking little, about space, why not? Just a little. You're just a little pie in the sky. I was, <laughs> I was joking. It doesn't make me feel insignificant because I, I know exactly how much I'm worth. Remember Paul Getty? Of course. He was once the world's most uh, wealthiest man because he was worth $1 billion. And I've told this story before. A reporter said to him one day, Mr. Getty, uh, do you know how much you're worth? And Paul Getty said, uh, no, I really don't. Because uh, if you know how much you're worth, you're not worth very much. And then he looked at the reporter and he said, and I suspect you know exactly how much you're worth. So <laughs> it was one of those moments of comeback. So a trillion bucks. As uh, Jerry Pacheco says, 67,866 miles into space if you were to pile a uh, trillion $1 bills, American $1 bills, because we don't have them anymore, on top of each other. That's how tall it would be. It's also um, a little less than our national debt. So may I ask you, since you're in the world of macroeconomics, can you just put the state of our nations, of Canada's finances, into perspective for us? Where are we now? Well, 
first of all, let's just get back very quickly. The world is worth about $92 trillion. And so before we go going crazy about Elon Musk, I have some sad news for you. He cannot afford to buy 16 countries in the world. Elon Musk cannot afford to purchase Indonesia all the way up to the United States. So before you get too excited, there are still limits. He still has a budget constraint, just like all of us. Yeah, fair enough. But what is the state of this country's finances? How would you describe where we are financially? Because 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when we were making the transition from Gretchen to Paul Martin, uh, the liberals, of course, one prime minister to the other, it wasn't a very friendly situation, but the country was up in arms over a $600 billion national debt, which Mr. Martin did a pretty good job of, uh, of managing when he became finance minister. So where are we Where are we relative to then as far as our national finances are concerned? Well, we're not as strong as we were then, and that doesn't make us special because COVID has taken a lot of countries and placed them not as strong as they were. The reality is, is that we do have, in a sense, an out-of-control debt. We have out-of-control amounts of currency in the economy. So what that's going to contribute to is you're going to have what we call aggregate demand, or the number of people chasing those dollars, uh, outweighing the number of opportunities to spend them. And anytime you have aggregate demand bigger than aggregate supply, that's going to fuel inflation. So you say, okay, so we have a lot of debt, um, we have inflationary pressure on the economy, but isn't it going to be helpful when the Bank of Canada comes and increases interest rates? Well, yes and no. Yes, that is going to put a damper on spending, but as soon as you put a damper on spending, you know that you're going to have uh, a decrease, or at least you're going to increase gross domestic product at a slower rate. So that, that's a convoluted answer to your question, but the real answer is we're okay. We are not in great shape. We are not as, we're not doing as well as some countries in the world, but we're doing a whole lot better than others because at the end of the day, our central bank and our government, as much as they sometimes trip over themselves, have done a pretty fair job of maintaining economic stability and liquidity throughout the crisis, Roy. So when the Bank of Canada, I mean, what is the role of the Bank of Canada at this point? We hear terms like quantitative easing. We have the, the governor of the Bank of Canada making a statement about where we are fiscally and where we're going. And then we have uh, CEOs of our major banks like RBC uh, challenging the governor of the Bank of Canada on what he had to say. How do you assess where we are and what's the role of the Bank of Canada in maintaining fiscal health uh, for, for this country? I think the role of the Bank of Canada is very simple. And if the listeners don't know, here it is. They are in control of two things. Number one is the money supply. How much money do we have in the economy? And number two is what is the what are the interest rates in the economy? And namely, the overnight rate. That is the rate that one bank lends to another bank. And every single interest rate in the economy comes from that rate. So they all kind of grow like tentacles off of that rate. So quite simply, what is the central bank supposed to do? It is there to maintain some sort of monetary and price stability. Now, they were doing, under Mark Carney, an exceptionally good job at both. And then the pandemic hit. And so they have not been doing as good a job, of course, but some would say, and I would have said in the very early days, like Mr. Giroux said, we had to do this as a one-time. We had to let the money supply get out of control 
once. The problem is, is they've let the money supply get out of control so many times, Roy, that we're going to feel the reverberations and the inflationary effects of that for a year. So how are we doing? We're not doing terribly, but I wish we were on that solid ground we were pre-COVID. Okay. Um, so so uh, last weekend, I think it was last weekend, I spoke with John Stackhouse. The weeks all sort of blend into each other. The vice president of RBC about their $2 trillion transition to a net zero economy uh, report. And can, with COP26 beginning and net zero being the uh, catch-all phrase for everybody these days, we're trying to figure out exactly what it means. We had different opinions ex- expressed to us over the last 24, 36 hours. But when you look at that and when you look at the $2 trillion transition and $60 billion a year is what it's going to require, this is according to Mr. Stackhouse, to get there, how do we do that? And what's the impact on the on the everyday Canadian? Because, and I've quoted this line so many times, but it's, it is a line in the report, and that is that Canadians are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. How do you put all that together? If I throw that goulash at you, what, how, do you how do you feed it to us? You know what? I decipher it being very simple, and I've said this on the show before, is that everything you have just said is in nominal terms, in nominal terms. And I think a lot of people get fooled sometimes into thinking in nominal terms. And nominal terms, Roy, that's the money in your wallet. That is not saying what that money is worth or what it can buy, what is its purchasing power. So what I would like to tell people to do is not get confused by these nominal values, but by real values. What what is the purchasing power of money? What is Mm -hmm. the purchasing power of a dollar? And when you talk about moving to net zero, no matter how you slice it or define it, people's purchasing power is going to fall. They are going to have less real disposable income. And frankly, coming out of uh, the crisis that we have just, well, I think we're coming out of it, but I'm not sure, that to me would be number one. Consumers would be number one. Spending would be number one. Purchasing power would be number one. With all due respect, I right now don't have a great amount of time for net zero and carbon taxes. I want to see more families get farther away from that $200 between themselves yes, and the insolvency. That's right. And we've heard that first it was 48% and then it went up to 52% of Canadian families, Canadians who are close to not even being able to meet their, uh, they're within $200 of not being able to meet their monthly financial obligations. That is a very, very disturbing number. Mike is in Toronto. Mike, thanks for the call. What's the question for Dr. Cam? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, the question is really simple. We've been printing money nonstop since 2008, and inflation has never really been an issue. So what's, this time the supply chain breaks down and inflation goes through the roof. So the question is, once the supply chain is back to normal, what, what happens to inflation? Shouldn't it just go back to the way it's been for the last decade and a half? Uh, in theory, yes. But the problem is, as we always say, is that when you pull a macroeconomic lever, things don't happen very quickly. And when you're talking about the billions and billions and billions of dollars, by the time the central bank is able to, what we say, accommodate that money and get inflation back to the 1% and 3% guidelines, the damage will have already been done. Okay, Mike. Thank you, Thank you for that. Yes, sir. I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. In Bridge... North Ontario. Here's Steve joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Corridor Radio Network. Where's Bridge North? 
Oh, it's just north of Peterborough, uh, kind of northeast Toronto, about an hour and a half drive. Oh, so you're living in God's country. You could say that, yeah. Yeah, I just did. (laughs) (laughs) What's your question for Dr. Cam? My question is, with all of the money printing going on, it looks to me like Justin Trudeau and uh, and even other uh, world leaders subscribe to the notion of modern monetary theory, where you can just go on printing money using taxation really becomes the only... The only reason for taxation is to control the money supply, and uh, uh, and that governments can't go broke. And I'd like to know his comments on on, on on that because that's what it looks like to me. You don't have any opinion on that, do you, Doctor Cam? Oh, I have so many opinions. There'd have to be a Roy <laughs> Green show part two. Number one, the caller is a thousand percent right. This government would advocate for modern monetary theory. Modern monetary theory, in one sentence, says debt and deficits don't matter. But guess what? Debts and deficits do matter if you care about economic growth, if you care about future generations, and you care about the solvency of your government. So as long as those things don't matter to our Prime Minister, then we're good. The problem is is there's a real world out there, and modern monetary theory has nothing to do with the real world. All right, Steve, appreciate it. In Bridge North, Ontario, in God's country, north of Peterborough. In uh, Hamilton, Ontario, talk about God's country. Here's Tony. How are you, Tony? Oh, not too bad. Just listening to what you're saying. What's the question, Tony? Uh, Can the government live within their means and still be able to pay down some of their debt? No, they live within our means, and they're not doing a good job of it. (laughs) You got that right. Okay. We're just an ATM. We are. you know what? It's an excellent question. I happen to be in Hamilton, too, right now, so I, I, uh, I, can, I can feel the question deep in my bones. And the answer is, of course, yes, because governments do set monetaries and fiscal policies, and they have the ability to live in, within whatever means they want to. The fact is that they've shown no um, credibility toward that in the last few years. But if you look at the run-up to where we were before COVID, and especially, as I say, the Mark Carney years, uh, but you should look back and be very proud of your central bank. We really did keep things like inflation and exchange rate fluctuations within a very tight band, and we were doing quite well. So the answer is yes, governments can live within their means. The problem is their means are a little bit different, as Roy said, with our means, and they really have to work right now diligently on getting purchasing power and people's individual wealth back to substable points. Tony, I appreciate the call. Dr. Cam, when it comes to inflation, here's my question. We've talked about inflation a fair bit. You and I talked about it last weekend. So we're at, I think it was 4.4%. So highest it's been in 20 years, close to 20 years. And I, I keep hearing that it's yeah, it's just transitory. It's not going to be around very much longer. Things will be under control by the time we get halfway through um, 2022. Supposed to be under control by the end of 2021. Now they're extending it out a little bit. Uh, or is it transitory at all? At this number point? One, it's not, no, number one, it's not transitory at all. The numbers are too big to be transitory. Um, that's a ridiculous statement that was made by a ridiculous person that we won't mention. That, that when you're talking billions and billions of dollars, there is nothing inherently transitory. And to say things like that, the implication is that inflation isn't that bad. But you know what? Inflation is that bad because it erodes every dollar we earn. And for some reason, that has never been a priority of this liberal government. And so I would say to your last caller as well about priorities and living within means, that is what right now, priority one, get some price stability back in this economy while it's still credible and still able to grow. 
If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 